This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I talked to author Lee Rourke about his novel, Vulgar Things, and about South End, our adopted hometown. Lee Rourke is the author of the short story collection Every Day and the novel The Canal, which won the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize in 2010. He is writer-in-residence at Kingston University, where he is an MFA lecturer in creative writing and critical theory. He also lectures in creative writing at the University of East London. His latest novel is Vulgar Things, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Lee, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms. You're welcome. Um, tell us in your own words what Vulgar Things is about, first of all. Um, it's a kind of strange quest novel. It's a guy who has kind of been spat out of his kind of the treadmill of his life in London onto Canvey um, because his estranged Uncle Ray has uh, sadly committed suicide. He's been living uh, away from the family in a caravan on Canvey Island. And he gets this phone call uh, one night from his brother instructing him that he has to go to Canvey to clear out his uncle's belongings. And the brother is kind of sniffing around for money and is wanting him to find and unearth that sort of thing. Whereas John Michael's the kind of protagonist. He's at a loss and he's kind of lost at sea within himself, with his life. His marriage has dissolved. He's been sacked from his job in London. He's an editor. And he's in this kind of quagmire of alcohol and, and self-pity. And he's mm-hmm. he's searching for some kind of foothold in the void and he feels that going to Canvey he may find this kind of foothold with his uncle's legacy Um, it doesn't quite turn out that way Um, he gets caught up in a whole manner of kind of seedy things he gets caught up firstly with the ebb and flow of the estuary this kind of monotonous kind of backwards and forwards Mm -hmm. motion that's kind of hypnotic to him and he gets kind of caught up in the big skies in the estuary especially at night he becomes obsessed with the stars and the mm-hmm. constellations, as has his uncle. Uh, he finds a telescope in, in the shed by the caravan which he's been observing the cosmos. And he gets involved in that. But he also gets involved in these kind of petty dramas that are unfolding on Canvey um, with some of the locals. But he also gets sucked into, uh, much like the sea gets sucked out of the estuary, into Southend, um, which is a, a, a much more vibrant kind of place than Canvey and um, he gets caught up in a kind of in the underworld there because he one day he goes to South End Pier and finds himself talking to a girl at the end of the pier and she kind of looks or sounds like she's in trouble and the conversation is very brief um, she says I've got to go they may be watching us and he's not really sure about what's happening until she's left and he sees her running down the pier and the rest of the novel is him trying to find her thinking he's found her but he's not they're people who look like her they're kind of apparitions of of the event that was once her if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and this kind of ties in with his uncle Ray who when he's searching through the caravan he finds lots of tapes and their recordings monologues of his uncle describing this book he's been trying to write called vulgar things which is all about trying to find truth and authenticity in the world and not being able to replicate truth and authenticity in the written word. Um, And it's this kind of real kind of frustration 
in not being able to mediate the truth with what we've got, which is just language. You know? and, and that right there is, is I'd suggest, the theme of the book, your version of Vulgar Things itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, Vulgar Things is, is an experiment in the kind of the lie of fiction, which is that it brings us closer to the truth. Whereas I would always argue that fiction is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pure construct. It's pure. It's a, a it's a machination of things put together in order to work or not work. You know what I mean? And and that's what I'm interested in. So for me, vulgar things is a kind of exploration of our failure in that sense to kind of navigate the truth. You know, and, and it goes all the way back to Virgil and Petrarch, mm-hmm. who. Um, their work was all about the truth, but it wasn't. They were all thinly guised copies of other things. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back yeah. to both of those a little later on. But let's talk about the characters, the main characters a little bit. First of all, John is the he's the narrator of the story. He's sure. the person who we, we see it through. Yeah. I mean, really, I'd say there were three main characters. There's John, mm. there's Ray, who's dead. Yeah. yeah. And there's Laura, the girl, mm. who's... Well, an enigma. I mean, basically, I didn't know how to what extent we'll be able to talk about this, really, but you've already sort of given it away. <laughs> um, basically, is really a, a figment of John's imagination. Yeah. Do you want me to start with Laura first? Yeah, or, go on then. Laura's a kind of cipher, a kind of cog in the wheel, many wheels, of what John is essentially caught in, which is the kind of commodity of the male gaze, mm-hmm. which you see acted out particularly in seaside towns, which are this kind of vulgar capitalist mechanism that facilitates the male gaze, you know, the strip clubs, Mm -hmm. the seedy nightclubs, the seedy arcades. It's all about, you know, the way we objectify women, you Mm -hmm. know. And So he's kind of caught in that unbeknownst, and not because he's misogynist in any way, it's just because he's the environment he stumbles into, that's its scaffold. And and in fact, he would describe himself, no doubt, as romantic. He sees this Laura, who ostensibly is, you know, some form of, sex worker or whatever works yeah. in one of the one of those clubs decides he needs to rescue her yeah yeah basically. and it's that real kind of sad romantic cliched desire which men find themselves in not through any fault of their own other than that it's always been like that there's a certain kind of pattern mm-hmm. to male desire and she doesn't really have any say in it no, no, no. And she is basically the machine, you know, the, the money-making machine. And he's this kind of entity that tries to... He's not trying to dismantle the machine. He's just trying to save some beauty from it. Mm-hmm. So he's objectifying her, but he sees it as the noble thing to do. Um, he doesn't see any anything further from that. You mm-hmm. know, he, he thinks that this is his quest to save this person. He doesn't realise that it's pure kind of objectification in in that way and pure kind of you know sexism within the male gaze mm-hmm. swirling around and he's just trying to hold on to something that gives him meaning and again i mean there are other people in this book who are possibly objectifying her in you know in different yeah. and more sinister ways yeah. certainly but again it the theme seems to be that she doesn't have any agency here i mean it's John is basically putting his idea of, you know, rescuing this woman, projecting that onto her. And again, I think, as you've sort of already mentioned, and I'll make it a bit clearer perhaps, that, you know, we see her, we see this character, Laura, four or five times. He encounters her throughout Mm. the book. And we're never sure it's the same person. No, to my mind, it isn't. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the person that matters. It's Mm -hmm. the image being mediated and replicated. What matters is the event on the pier where he does meet somebody and then everything else that happens afterwards is either an apparition of that person or a different mediation of that person. But what's steadfast, and the only thing that's steadfast, is John's desire Mm -hmm. to save this person or this idealisation of beauty as he sees it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter if it's not the same person. Mm -hmm. To him it is. So I leave that kind of ambiguous and um, to me it doesn't matter if it is or isn't and I like playing with that Mm -hmm. in the book. I like pulling the rug from under him and from under myself when I was writing it. I didn't plan there to be different. That just seemed to happen. So tell us about John then. So where has he he come from? You you briefly mentioned that he's basically 
been thrown out of his life in London. Yeah. John, What's happened to him? John, as I see it, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of characterization in novels, and I try to steer clear of, of characterization mm-hmm. in that sense, and I don't actually like talking about people in my novels as characters who you hear a lot of novelists who go yes and you know he just did what he wanted you know and uh, no I'm not that sort of writer I, I don't they're mm-hmm. pure constructs and they're pure ciphers that enable me to get from point A to B when I'm writing mm-hmm. you know? but if but, he, if he sorry well I was going to say that does come across in the writing it's all incredibly immediate it's you know it's right in the now and he is really a cipher I mean mm. we don't learn very much about John no. we do see everything through his eyes yeah. so he is he is our tool to see into the world yeah completely and uh, that's why it's in present tense mm. uh, because I don't want him reflecting on who he is yeah. or what's happening so he's completely, he's like a pinball in a machine being pinged to wherever without any kind of thought or as to mm-hmm. why this is happening. He's just being pushed that way. But he, th- he does come from somewhere and I think that, he, what his job is basically yeah, is relevant mind, to yeah, the way he my, behaves. I think so, yeah. In my mind he comes from the kind of archetypal Islington bourgeois media kind of environment that he is obviously not comfortable in and he obviously doesn't fit within it and then also within my mind and a reviewer picked up on it recently it's also i'm taking the bourgeois london protagonist Mm -hmm. out of that very kind of bourgeois environment i never forget that the novel is a bourgeois construct Mm -hmm. you know is it grew to reflect bourgeois tastes and the bourgeoisie's tastes you know so you know i kind of wanted to take a protagonist out of the kind of default mode environment for modern fiction london media savvy blah blah Mm -hmm. blah and throw him kind of into the wilderness and canvey island is wild in that sense (laughs) you know and uh and and I liked that. I liked that's why there's a kind of hoodwinking for the first kind of twenty pages or so of you think it's going to be this kind of novel about the you know publishing in London and blah 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 and and but it isn't. It, mm-hmm. it soon is taken away from that. So yeah, so he's this. He's a bit of driftwood in a sense. He's a, he's the square peg that doesn't fit in the round hole. He's he's the guy who constantly fails and doesn't know what to do about it he's the guy who knows that there's a past knows that there's a future but is completely stuck in the present and can only see things through the present and it's through him we see the past or what the future could be and he's like this kind of node that's recording everything for the reader or for me in the way that he does he's always recording things with his phone Mm -hmm. And um, it's all about those lenses. He's a kind of lens to this kind of strange world he's found himself in. I'm Charlotte Higgins, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And then we have Ray, who has spent the past however many decades on living alone on Canvey Island, basically doing the same thing, writing and then video recording everything, basically. His whole life life is lived through sitting and writing journals and and recording every moment. Ray, to me, is this beautiful kind of ghost. And in a sense, we are all ghosts, especially now in this, because I'm very interested in new aesthetic and the kind of uh, overlapping of the digitised world over over what we call the real world and the digitised world becoming the real world, you Mm -hmm. know. So, and and in a sense, you know, we're we're all, we've all got a bit of Ray in us. We all record things knowing that they will be viewed by other people. And that's why we're doing it. And there was once a time when at a rock concert, you would light a flame yeah. that can burn you, you mm-hmm. know, that you can feel, and you would collectively put it over your head. Mm-hmm. So now you go to a concert and it's the smartphone yeah. recording the event for another time. Yeah, which will never happen. Exactly. Uh, you will never watch that concert on a, on that tiny little screen, very blurred from that distance. Yeah, exactly. And But then if it is mediated... When it is watched, it is then real, mm-hmm. but in a, it's a different type of reality. Which... But it's almost like the experience has to be experienced in the moment through a screen. Exactly. There was a wonderful. It's a. There was a wonderful image I saw during a very horrific kind of catastrophe, which was um, the Twin Towers collapsing. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy. There was the TV camera, and then in front of the TV camera, there was a guy with a mobile phone filming the big screens in Times Square 
relaying what was happening in Manhattan. And it was this lens upon lens upon lens, the, the, the mise-en being, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, and I just thought, that is reality. That's mm-hmm. where we're at. The event is not ever experienced. The event is always mediated. You could sort of make an argument for doing it in that case as being some form of coping mechanism with this terrible reality that's happening mm. in front of you. Yeah. But that's obviously not the same that you've no. been paid to go to a gig. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's something happening with human consciousness where we are overlapping reality with a digitised unreality that mm-hmm. becomes reality. I know this is nothing new. I'm not hit something new, Baudrillard and, and people like that. Um, you know, the, the simulacrum becomes mm-hmm. real. This is nothing new, but this has been happening and is happening. And, you know, every every technology creates its new, you know, its own mediation. Every disaster creates its own mediation. You know, with the Titanic, it was the uh, Marconi radio and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Gulf War, it was TV. Mm-hmm. Or, CNN. Yeah, CNN. And with uh, modern day catastrophes, it's Twitter, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, so every, you know, technology kind of recreates mediation in that way and I'm interested in that but I'm also interested in how he records John how he records his footsteps throughout the novel he he records certain things that he feels are real to him so he has to record them in order to them to really be real so he can re-watch that reality well you've got I've just said about this idea of the video in 9-11 as a, as a sort of coping mechanism yeah John is the person in the the present day, the modern person with the smartphone. Yeah. But there's an element of the fact that Ray is... And again, we won't talk about why, because, you know, that's part of the other fun of the book, but it's almost as if Ray is doing this stuff as a means of coping with something that he's done. Trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's... In all the literature I I love, i.e. modernism, it's, it's the ripple of... The trauma ripples through it. And it's trauma that causes the art to appear. And the traumatic event... For Ray is what happens with John's mother. And that's traumatised him throughout his life. And he's trying to navigate through that in order to find that kernel of truth within it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Much like Beckett's crap does with Mm -hmm. the spools. And beneath all, and as Beckett told us, beneath all this technology and indeed beneath everything is desire. And that's all that can be found. In the same way that Craps Last Tape, there's that moment where there, you know, where he's with his lover, and that's the moment, that's the event, mm-hmm. desire with Ray. And but he doesn't quite come to terms with it. He's unearthing. He's he's scraping through this trauma by recording his thoughts and recording his failed attempts to write this truthful book about her. Mm-hmm. And he's getting deeper and deeper and deeper down to the base root, which is his own desire his own desires, which underpins everything. You've mentioned the influence of Virgil on on Ray and and the writing of the book that he's doing. The other thing this sort of reminded me of is, in some ways, this is... It's a tragedy in that there's an element that, in the present day, John, while he's trying to uncover what Ray has done, predestined to reenact the same things. There's a kind of doubling in that sense, which is a kind of irony. And hopefully a a kind of comedic irony. I was reading that Simon Critchley recently, and he said true tragedy is comedic. Mm -hmm. Because tragedy in the original sense, we learn something through death, through tragedy. Whereas comedy, you learn nothing. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? You repeat the same mistakes. Which is why Beckett's so good, mm-hmm. because his tragedy is the comedy. You know, in Waiting for Godot, which is essentially about the Holocaust, and that there's that famous line in it, how many died while we were sleeping. The audiences miss that because there's a gag right before it and a gag right after mm-hmm. it, and it's always ignored because people laugh over it. And it's the line in mm-hmm. the play. So there's, I kind of, without writing a funny book, I wanted there to be an element, a comedic element of, he's just retreading the same footsteps there. Mm. He's learning nothing from this quest. Do you know what I mean? Ha-ha! You're not going to learn anything about death. You're not going to learn anything about your life. You're just going to repeat the same things, mm-hmm. you know, over and over again. And, and that's that's kind of what was in my mind as I was kind of devising it. The Virgil thing is this idea of the lie about truth. You know, the Virgil's uh, Aeneid... It's and it's the true. He's, he's forging the true history of of Rome, you know, and uh, how this happened. But he's not really Virgil. He's just trying to appease his friend Augustus, you mm-hmm. know. And Virgil is just really rewriting Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing truthful in that epic, you know. 
as beautifully brilliant and dripping with genius as it is, there's nothing truthful in it. And to me, that amuses me. A book so involved with truth is untruthful. And for me, that's the great secret lie of all art. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of writers who believe that. You know, the, 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 as Tom McCarthy would say, and, and Simon Critchley, art's dirty secret is inauthenticity all the way down. From the very early cave paintings of the re- the replication of the one icon mm-hmm. to the Byzantine paintings of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy. You know, that's art. That's mm-hmm. where art stems from, that, that inauthenticity. So I want that in vulgar things. And in that sense, as mad and as crazed as Uncle Ray is, mm-hmm. to us bourgeois readers, he's the only truthful character in it. Do you know what I mean? As mad mm-hmm. as he is. And he's just really replicating... Virgil, mm-hmm. and also Petrarch as well, which is... You know, yeah, I was, we're going to bring yeah. on to Petrarch yeah. next, because well, we talked about this idea of John basically imagining this, the character of Laura via the medium of completely different women every time he experiences them. This is basically, you can tell us that this comes from Petrarch. Yeah, Petrarch. Not many people read Petrarch, to my knowledge. Petrarch basically single-handedly invented the sonnet, Mm -hmm. as we know it. Um, One day, he's walking, a real-life event, he's walking, takes one of his daily walks. He meets Laura, a local girl, on the bridge. They have the briefest of chats, very mundane chat, probably just a pleasantry, hello, goodbye sort of thing, how are you? Mm -hmm. And for the rest of her life, she dies before him, and the rest of his life, he dedicates his entire work to it. He writes over 800 what are now called sonnets mm-hmm. dedicated and about Laura. Not only does he create the art of the sonnet, mm-hmm. you, know, in, you know, in that sense, which is wonderful, but he also, for me, galvanises the male desire in the artistic process for the first time. And Laura becomes the kind of the image to worship from afar. Mm -hmm. The idea of the woman on the pedestal to gaze at, to look at, to admire. Now, you know, a a few hundred years later, the same thing's happening, Mm -hmm. but in a far more vulgar way. Mm -hmm. You're gazing up at the woman on the stage, stripping on the pole. Do you know what I mean? And it, yeah. there's, a, there's a real kind of connection with, you know, and all things, so many things have happened, primarily capitalism and commodity. But of course, even back with the, you know, the original version with Petrarch, Laura is, she's not a, a real character. She has no say in this. No, nothing, of course. And to all accounts, I think, was completely unaware, you know, of his his artistic kind of desire in that his sense. His artistic stalking. Yeah, yeah, and he is basically a stalker in that sense, like John is a stalker. But yeah, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. There's no, there's no in in within the male gaze. There's no ironically room for the woman. Do you know what I mean? It's one hundred percent a male gaze. You know, there's nothing. And right from and right from those sonnets, right from that day on the bridge, you know, it's, and that's what I try to replicate in vulgar things with the meeting on the pier. Mm-hmm. It's his interpretation of events, and that's all that matters. Not the truth, mm-hmm. not what what is actually really happening to the woman or has happened to the woman he meets on the pier. I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about perhaps another way in which you play with that idea of of literature as as an idea of a untruth all the way through the book there are other allusions to literature we're going to talk more about the location in the second part of the show but yeah. to sort of get us there a large part of this book takes place in in a real pub the lobster smack yeah. on canby island yeah but this is a pub that dickens wrote about so yeah. that in itself was was a deliberate move was it? yeah and also um a, a, a lesser known victorian author called robert buchanan who's also a character he's in, the landlord yeah yeah he's the landlord and robert buchanan wrote um andromeda uh, um the idyll of the island a 19th mm-hmm. century uh novel that is brilliant and awful at the same time i loved it it's um but wonderful writing about can be, mm-hmm. but also the same myth that I recreate in the book of the Lady in the Lake, which mm-hmm. is a common kind of myth in Canvey. So yeah, it's I purposely place my book in a place where other books have placed their fictions. Mm-hmm. And not in a, a ontological sense um, or a Derridian sense in that way, but more to just 
lay things open more to kind of to show the un, the untruthfulness of the world of fiction you know mm-hmm. to show that i'm not being authentic to show that i'm not being original mm-hmm. you know that's important to me so yeah and also to nod and a wink that you know it's a book it's not real life okay other books have written about the same places in the exact same place so uh, in a sense i want the ghosts of those books there and it doesn't matter if they're not there some readers may not give two hoots Mm -hmm. if dickens or buchanan wrote about the lobster smack you know Mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter and finally to get us to the place that we're going to talk about in the in the second part this book is set in in a place in a county that perhaps more than anywhere else in in england particularly people who don't know it have a idea of it Sure, a mediated idea mm-hmm. via via tabloid media mm-hmm. uh, and via sniffy kind of tabloid patronising media. Yeah, I mean that's what fascinates me about this place, and I love it here. My wife's from here; she was born in Thorpe Bay um, and grew up there. But before I met my wife, I was living in London, and yeah, you, my idea of Essex was the you know the usual cliched ideas of and images of Essex where we're bombarded with and when i came here i immediately was struck by it i was struck by the place and and by its kind of strange beauty Mm -hmm. you can't help but be struck by how beautiful the estuary is um and people go but there's the big power station there and i go yeah but that's part of it you know and like look at all the mud yeah that's beauty's part of it's a blank beautiful canvas you know it's so flat and amazing and that struck me when i when i first got the train here and i we came out of benfleet station and i was just like wow yeah wow gosh cockle sheds wow i didn't realize there was this kind of old essex Mm -hmm. still in existence around here so I immediately, and, and like anywhere, and like I, it's natural for me to immerse myself in a place. And um, it struck me very quickly that there's a real kind of sense of mythology in this area. There's a real sense of storytelling. Um, and it's all to do with the land, and it's all to do with the flatness of the land and the ebb and flow of the estuary. And there's also a kind of distrust of London that I didn't <laughs> think existed. You know, when you talk to the, you go in the old pubs in South End. They don't much like London, some of the older guys. You know, and a lot of them, their families are from mm-hmm. London. They're old East End types. And, and then there's that, there's that that kind of distrust. But then there's also the kind of a real vulgar, bling love of London. And it's twofold. There's the real kind of horrible, glitzy Leon C bit where it's all about sitting outside the cafes with your car parked outside your big... Posh, you know, and showing your wealth. Mm-hmm. There's that fascination with London, where they try to recreate London, or their idea of what living in London is. Mm-hmm. And then you also get the the other kind of re- recreating of London, which is the kind of the old East End and the kind of harking back to how it used to be in the old East End, and like you know the obsession with the craze and mm-hmm. things like that. That's still in evidence here, and, and you know, and and that fascinates me. So there's this kind of twofold obsession with London, but also a kind of deep distrust of London that really fascinates me. But then also the mythologies, the kind of beauty of the place, the secret. This it's full of secrets. There's all, and it's all old secret roads. Like the road just down here is called Old South End Road, mm-hmm. and that was the old dirt track from Prittlewell because South End was the South mm-hmm. End of Prittlewell, and that was the dirt road down to the beach for the fishermen and things. So there's all these little traces. Toledo Road, um, just down the road from here, where a large section of, of vulgar things takes place, was once a river. There's always a, another side to the story in South End that I like. And also, it, it lays itself bare, South End. It doesn't, it's not ashamed of itself, which I like. You kind of take it how it is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, so what? And I like that attitude. And I'm from Manchester. And it reminds me of the Manchester I grew up in, which is very working class in a city. Manchester and the Mancunian kind of attitude of like, yeah, we're not London, who gives a shit? You know, we don't care, we're Mancunian. You get that here, you know, you get that with the Essex, you know. Yeah, we're out, and they're deeply proud of being from Essex, deeply proud of being from South End, you know. So, yeah, I, I completely fell in love with the place. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Lee Rourke, and we're talking about his book Vulgar Things. And on last week's show, Lee, I was talking to the the author Ben Ferguson, and we were talking about Berlin. Okay. And we had quite a, a, a long discussion about the fact that he'd lived in Berlin and how important was that to his realization of the of the city, albeit a historical novel. And well, this is a book that's is entirely saturated in its area. It yeah. seems unthinkable that. It could have been written by somebody who didn't live here. Yeah. But at the same time, it's quite, it's often quite vague and dreamlike. Yeah. And, and perhaps I'm projecting that because I do live here. Yeah. I am now a local and it's an amazing thing. I mean, I lived in London for a long time, wherein all media is made in London. And every street you walk down, either you've seen it before in a film yeah. or there is a film crew yeah. making a TV programme on the corner or something. Yeah. You, get, you get very used to that. But to see that same thing replicated somewhere where you don't expect it is quite a, I think, quite an unusual thing. But of course, that means nothing to somebody who, who doesn't live here. Yeah. And I think to people that don't come from this area, they would read this and it would be like a, you know, a, a sort of, you know, dreamlike sort of magical realist type sort of thing. Mm. But to me, it's a, it's a, a realist novel. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, I like playing with, I, I don't consider myself a realist. I do it all off memory. I don't sit there with a map. And I like there being blank spaces. Mm -hmm. And I like there being dead ends and things not quite adding up or matching up as they are in reality. So I don't try to replicate it in any way, shape or form to mirror Mm -hmm. everything around us. But I am interested in topographical properties of the area and the the grid-like mapping of an area. So Mm -hmm. I, I plan movement of characters and where they will go for canvi my research the map i used was the lead singer of uh, dr feelgood lee brillo drew a pirate map of canvi and that's the map i used mm-hmm. so i used the reimagining of canvi for my own reimagining mm-hmm. of canvi and with the south end sections of the novel i live in the center of south end so i know south end and i know the roads around when i picture what's happening in the book i picture the streets around me so i just use them Mm -hmm. 
And I think the dreamlike quality of that comes from it being a reimagining rather than a, a mirror image. And I'm aware of that. And I enjoy the, I enjoy it when someone from South End or Canvey says, oh, it's so great to just, like, you know, read a, a fiction where the pubs I go to and things like that are in it and things like that. And I like that. But I also like it where someone from the US reads it and goes, what is this place, Canvey? What's it like? <laughs> you know, and they're intrigued about it in different ways, you know, and to them it's very mysterious. I like playing with those two elements. I'm not in any sense a realist writer. I don't try to replicate the real whatsoever. Um, unfortunately, all I have is my perception of the real to deal with. So that's why certain real things saturate the novel and real people. There's mm-hmm. lots of real people in the novel. And I'm pretty sure if people in the bars of South End and the bars that are in this novel mm-hmm. will see themselves in it. You know, the barmaids are the barmaids you'll go to the pub now and I think they still work there so that's just how I kind of navigate the fiction through the real but it, I'm not trying to replicate it in any way well I was going to say that you, the obvious realist thing to me is that you do use real places real street names but also real pubs and you you talk about pubs that I've been in and drank in featuring the book and and if you, you know, if you're a drinker or want to read this book and want to visit yeah. the, you know, the lobster smack or the, um, you know, the crooked billet or something, yeah. then you paint nice pictures of those. Yeah. You also talk about places that people won't want to visit yeah. Yeah. and name them. Yeah. I mean, how does that work? Do you do you tell them? Do you have some sort of responsibility as a writer? To... No, <laughs> I'm not. No, doesn't no. I mean, probably I'm going to get, you know, no one's knocked on my door yet or anything. No, but, you know, I imagine I, the, you know, the, the landlord of the, of the cornucopia or wherever, when, when somebody puts this book in front of him, might yeah, not but, like I mean, the I'll, betrayal. I'll, I'll state that here, the cornucopia is a dreadful, horrible book. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's a beautiful building and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's just dreadful. It's one of those pubs that you look at from the outside and think that yeah. looks like it could be an amazing it could place. Be, you, could just, <laughs> you could just be just a great pub and it's not. It's horrid. It's really horrid. And um, I don't care who knows that. It is a horrid pub. I wouldn't advise anyone to go there. But, you know, that's rea- that, if that's a reality, that's a reality. But um, I think it echoes the way things are laid bare in, in this town. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, the, you know, that's just the way it is down on the seafront. I don't think it'll last. I think things are changing. Mm-hmm. There's pockets of gentrification happening all over and um, South End is changing. And, and I am pretty sure that those places will eventually go and, and new landlords with different ideas will, will take over, which is great. But at the same time, won't... Because I, I think that... I actually think that seafront stretch that you're, we're talking about now seems resistant to... But it, the area around it yeah. is gentrified. All the lovely fountains get yeah. put in and... The, Becomes a bit pedestrianised and all nice, but yeah. the places, yeah, the there's places a number of pubs, the isn't there? There's the Foresters, which is just horrid. The Foresters is is particularly interesting because it, it's ostensibly it has a little garden. It's ostensibly a family pub, yeah, with strippers, yeah, yeah. It says a fam- family's welcome, yeah. It's just, but what I love about it as well, it's almost like a fortress. Mm-hmm. It's like walled. And they've got that big gate, so they've shut themselves off. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And they're steadfastly resolute in, in keeping it the way it is. And it's just awful. It's the, the worst kind of dregs, you know, of, of sad men and their desires, their real petty desires and their petty titillations. Do you know what I mean? It's, <clears throat> it's really sad. I used to live in Brighton, mm-hmm. what, a good 15 years ago, before it's what it is now, which is a, a completely gentrified mm-hmm. kind of place. And so uh, Brighton had those mm. along the seafront, you know, had those seedy little places. Um, they've all pretty much gone now, um, and I'm pretty sure that'll happen in South End. You know, it'll be sad, but it'll be a welcome relief as well for a lot of people. But I, I wanted, I needed those places in vulgar things. Mm-hmm. I needed John to stumble into those places and be the square. Mm-hmm. Peg, you know, you know, not fit, and and then be spat out of them and and stumble into another because they kind of govern the world he he's stumbling around. If you know what I mean, they're the kind of the uh, stanchions of mm-hmm. that crude kind of commodity down there. You know, and they're, they're the pillar stones of that crude community. So he's he had to visit those places, and they had to be as they are. 
and, and as real as they are. Mm-hmm. I want to sort of go back to that idea of, of the, the pirate map and how that the sort of imagined version sort of lays on yeah. on top of the realist one. I think, you know, for me it was almost most apparent in, you know, John, he travels back and forth between yeah. almost with the sort of coming and going of the tide from yeah. Canvey into South End back to Canvey. And often he'll walk from Canvey to... Which yeah. nobody would do. No. Right. So I think in some respects that geography yeah, it seems to be truncated. Yeah, completely. I mean, I've cycled from South End mm-hmm. onto Canvey um, along that kind of seawall bit mm-hmm. uh, that you can see off the train. And uh, you know, I wouldn't like to walk it because it takes, it takes most, you know, most of the morning. But yeah, he just pleasantly does it. Mm-hmm. You know, he walks into South End and walks back to Canvey. But I like that kind of. I like those black holes, those blank spaces. I see, you know, in the same way that when you're watching EastEnders and they're in the Queen Vic, mm-hmm. you know that behind you there's no Queen Vic. You know mm-hmm. that above you there's no Queen Vic. You just see what you need to see. If the shot's being made there then everything in front of that shot within frame needs mm-hmm. to be right. It doesn't matter if there's a blank space between, you know. So that's how I kind of see fiction. It doesn't matter that in reality it takes far longer mm-hmm. to walk from Canvey in a fiction, in my novel. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, and it's not going to change the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it doesn't, so it, it's, and it's easier for me, it's construct. So it's easier for me to... I want him to walk because it's about walking. Mm-hmm. And I want him to walk from Canvey to South End. And in my novel, he can do that. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I sort of mentioned this idea of him flowing, following the sort of ebb and flow of the tide. Yeah. So perhaps I'd, I'd like to elaborate on that, how the landscape, the sort of the flat, the estuary, the mud, yeah. affects... The characters in this book? I think it completely affects John and it also affects my writing of John. Mm-hmm. The blackness for a start when you're out there in, in its night and the sky, I mean, is so kind of foreboding and, and really kind of puts you under the microscope, mm-hmm. you know, and really makes you think, my God, look, how, look at me, how insignificant and little. I am. You know what I mean? And then, and, and, and this is nothing new, you know, if you, the first paragraph of uh, Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. Conrad, he talks about the grey sky and the grey sea welding together into a, um, a vanishing flatness. Um, and it's that same kind of psychological effect it has. Mm-hmm. Is sometimes when you look out into that estuary, it becomes huge nothingness. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you go out to the end of the pier, A, there's nothing at the end of the pier. And B, you're kind of being delivered by in this like really tacky train to nothingness. Mm-hmm. And especially when the tide's just out and it's reflecting the sky and you're just out on the end of this pier and it's like you're surrounded by nothingness. Mm-hmm. And for me, when you, you are confronted with nothingness, that's where the petty dramas can begin. And again, with the mud, I see it as a very big, flat, blank canvas mm-hmm. where you can do what you want with it and, and, and then it's washed away. And then you can redo what you want with it and then it's washed away. And, and, and at the very start of the book, he speaks to a barmaid in a pub in Soho and they talk about, oh, oh is this just another petty drama? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the book is about, you know, this kind of... Uh, remember the Exosketch kind of toys from the mm-hmm. 70s? And you could create a mess... You know, you could try to draw a car and you never could. Then you get frustrated and it would become a mess. And then you could just brush it away and it would all be pristine again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what happens here with the, in my mind, mm-hmm. with the ebb and flow of the estuary. These petty dramas are acted out. Everything becomes a mess and unfolds and lays itself bare. Then the sea comes in and takes it all away again. You know, and that's kind of what's happening. And that's why there's no real denouement. There's no kind of real thrust they're just these little things that happen. And they're not Joycean epiphanies or anything like that. They're kind of more anti-epiphanies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're little things, signposts that happen throughout the novel. You may record them or try and find some sense within them, but they're nothing much and they certainly won't be there tomorrow. So the, the landscape, in my imagination or imagining of it, it's all about that. It's all about the toing and froing, the cleansing, the kind of flatness 
the welding together of, of nothingness mm-hmm. upon nothingness, you know, and what that can open up within you. We're both people that have come to South End yeah. via London, ostensibly from the north. You're originally from Manchester. Yeah. I was born in the Midlands, but right. well, my family are from the northeast. Okay. How do you you sort of hinted at this in the first half, but how do you compare the southeast and its sort of attitude to life and you know the the welcomeness of the people perhaps to what you're used to from from your background in in the northwest there's a lot I find a lot of similarities I find a lot of similarities, especially now I don't know if this is happening everywhere, but there's a real kind of showy brassy kind of way about people down here mm-hmm. they like to sh- if they've you know if they made a bit of money they like to show it well when i grew up in manchester if you made a bit of money you didn't like to show it because not a lot of people would like you if you had a lot of money but now when i go back there's there's real displays of wealth especially mm-hmm. in the area where i grew up that they didn't used to be and i don't know if that's kind of part of of, of a, a, a kind of vulgar modernity we've mm-hmm. been thrust into or, or if it's a kind of, or we're one and the same. But uh, that, aside from that, there's a real sense of, as I said, of community, mm-hmm. of family, um, of storytelling. Mm-hmm. There's also that real kind of sad men's culture mm-hmm. in, acted out in the pubs, which is very old-fashioned. You know, you, you, in the, in the, when I used to go to the old pubs in Manchester... That still exists today. You know, that working-class pubs in South End are very same. I'm sure they are all around the country, but that ur-indoors kind mm. of attitude and those tall tales being told. Um, and then, you know, so there's all... I see those sort of similarities. I find it very friendly down here, which, you know, you're, you're led to believe as a northerner that the southerners aren't friendly. Um, Do you which... find that in comparison to London, though? Because Possibly... I find I found moving out here to be a lot friendlier than yeah. living in London, but then... I was only earlier this year up in Manchester for a few days and was immediately taken back about how friendlier everybody was. Yeah, down here. Manchester's very friendly. Well, growing up in Manchester, if you heard a different accent, you would, you'd be fascinated. I was. Where are you from? Oh, mm-hmm. right. Well, what are you doing here? Oh, really? You know, there was a real kind of... Um, London, you know, it's so big and everyone's from everywhere. It doesn't really matter if you hear a different accent. And no one's, mm-hmm. Everyone's trying to get somewhere because it's really hard to get from... It's a bit what you don't understand when you're in Manchester and you go down to London. Mm-hmm. You don't understand how big London is. Mm-hmm. And you don't understand how hard it is from get to A to B yeah. in London if you're going to meet someone. So that's why everyone's caught up in their own little solipsistic world. They're trying to get somewhere. So you kind of mistake that from unfriendliness. But, you know, if you drink in the, in the pubs in London, you know, they're friendly people, really. But down here, there's, there's a kind of, you know, people will talk to you. You know, and, and, and people have time to talk mm-hmm. because we're not rushing about to get places. But saying that, New York's a friendly town. I mean, I, I was always struck by how friendly people are there. And, that, mm-hmm. you know, that's a real hustle-bustle <laughs> kind of place. So I think there, there's similarities. I've written an essay, or I'm just about to finish an essay for Influx Press about my experiences of... Um, moving down from London to Southend. And I, I do mention the differences with London, but also the similarities. Moving to Southend has made me think about Manchester more than I did when mm-hmm. I was in London. You know, oh, yeah, that's very similar, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, so if you get past media mythology of the area, if you get past the fact that it's not London, it never will be London. Do you know what I mean? No, how much parts of this area try to be, it never will be. If you get past that, if you get past, you know, the fact that, you know, there's certain things that you won't find here that were on your doorstep in London, mm-hmm. then it's just a great place. You know, it's a great place to live. And, well, I've been here three years now and absolutely love it. I can't see myself really moving away from this area. I've been here seven years yeah. and really love the place and we have a lot of friends now and really yeah. feel part of the community a place that when i not particularly often go to but actually was there just last weekend funnily enough that feels completely different yeah. to this place of course it's the place that we're talking here about south end but the place that features heavily in this book is canvey island yeah. let's talk about canvey island for a bit what is it about canvey oh gosh where do i start canvey is just fascinating hey it's below sea level. You know, it's, it's, it's reclaimed land. The Dutch came over here and there's still old 
Dutch roundhouses on Canby, who were, they were experts in, mm-hmm. in reclaiming the marshland. So if you look at, if you're at the sea wall at Canby, you see the sea, and then you look down, and there's street level. That really hits home when you get there. When I first went to Canby, mm-hmm. it felt different. And the, the people who live there call themselves, you know, islanders. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really feel a dislocation mm-hmm. from everywhere else. And I'm interested in that in fiction. My previous novel, The Canal, was about dislocation from uh, reality. The canal is lower down than street level in London. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested in that. So I was immediately struck by that. And then I was also struck by the history of Canvey. There's been a real... There was the catastrophe of the flood mm-hmm. that killed all those people. And I, I had family um, on my, my wife's side who, who helped in the rescue, who were on Canvey when it happened that evening from uh, um, my wife's grandfather was a farmer he used to take his cattle onto Canby mm-hmm. and he was he was there that, that night of the flood so there's that I always knew about Canby growing up in Manchester I'd heard of Canby mm-hmm. and, and thought it was this really kind of idyllic place people went on holiday people do which go, it is which it is <laughs> people do go on holiday there you know people go on caravanning holidays there and then, so there's that, and then there's the whole Dr. Feelgood thing, mm-hmm. and that, that kind of mythology of the Thames Delta, that, that kind of sprang from there. But then there's also this kind of, there's this strange, it's a strange, strange place, and it's densely populated now, but it didn't used to be, and, and people used to, like families used to live in old abandoned railway carriages mm-hmm. and things like that, and because, like, it's reclaimed land, all the electricity wires are like telephone wires, you know, the electricity is on poles mm-hmm. along the streets. And it kind of has that Wild West mm. feeling about it. And it was the last place in the UK to have CCTV. So football hooligans would meet on Canvey to fight so that they wouldn't get caught. You know, so it has all this kind of it has all this kind of outsider kind of mentality to it, and I'm pretty sure that the people who live on Canby that's natural to them. But there's also kind of micro lives being lived there. There's the the, the kind of the Cockneys done good mm-hmm. would buy plots of land there and build their houses, and there's a kind of real there's a, like a, a millionaire's row on Canby with these neo Grecian kind of. You know, Footballers' mansions. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, they look really they're eyesores, but they're mansions, but they look dreadful. And you know, so all this is being acted out, and it's a very no, it's not a big island. It's it's this, it's just this densely populated, strange place. And then when you get to the jetty area of Canby and where the lobster smack is. You find this beautiful-looking weatherboard pub mm-hmm. that anywhere else in England would have this beautiful view of the sea, you know, would overlook this beautiful... But because of the topography and because of the history of the island, there's just this seawall that obliterates any kind of view of the estuary. And I just love that. And I wanted that to be replicated in vulgar things because when Dickens wrote about it and Buchanan wrote about it, it was just basically on the waterfront, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. you could see Kent. But now there's this concrete wall that just obliterates any idea of the idyll. Uh, you know, and, and I love that. about, And that, to me, kind of perfectly sums up what's strange and beautiful about Canby. And I also... You know, it has its mythologies. There's lots of stories. Uh, the Lady in the Lake is, is, is the big one, but there's, there's lots of strange stories about Canby. But what interests me the most is the way people in Southend and Leon Sea and Westcliff literally and metaphorically look down on Canby. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you, you get the, oh, it's all a bit Canby. You know what I mean? If something's not very to their taste. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that fascinates me because I hate that attitude. But that also ties in with, you know, in vulgar things, the kind of pedestals and, the, mm-hmm. the, and looking down and looking up and, and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I would advise everyone to go to Canby and just have a look around. You can do that wonderful walk around the sea wall. You go from um, Lobster Smack past the Labworth Cafe mm-hmm. round to Canby Heights, and, and, and it's a wonderful walk. And you, get, you kind of get a sense of the area and these beautiful huge container ships just gliding by and you really can, I talk about it in vulgar things but you really can feel the rumble mm-hmm. of the engines 
of these powerful things reverberating, you know. And I love, yeah. So yeah, it's a great place. I knew immediately when we first went there. We cycled onto it with my in-laws. They took us there, and I knew immediately that I would set a novel mm-hmm. on Canvey. I know. I, I just it, it just made sense to me. I'm Ben Ferguson, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Just one final question then to finish off, and more generally, you spoke earlier about you know the the novel itself being you know an artificial thing and particularly a you know a bourgeois construct, and we've also talked about modern technology and you know its yeah. and its place in the modern world. And modern technology is something that's nowadays has affected massively the novel, not just the novel, but the novelists, yeah. like the world of the world of literature. So, being a young modern novelist nowadays how do you see how do you see yourself as a novelist what, what's your role mm, that's a very good question i don't know if there is a role for the novelist like there used to be anymore i mean you do get your public intellectuals some of them who are no- novelists that people turn to mm-hmm. who, and, and want them to comment on world events but there doesn't seem to be the need for novelists in the same way there's the need for books to be read, there's lots of books being written, there's lots of books being read. But novelists don't really matter like mm-hmm. they used to. I don't think there's a real role outside of writing the book itself. I do think of myself as a novelist or a writer, but it certainly doesn't define me. And it certainly doesn't give me agency in, to talk about the world on a, a, outside of mm-hmm. literature. You know, It doesn't, doesn't give me any agency in that sense. Uh, as it once would have done. Um, it certainly hasn't made me rich, which is no bad thing. I didn't get in it to be a millionaire. You know, I just it's the only thing I can basically do. And I love doing it, even though it's hard work and I hate sitting down to write. But what should you be writing if it's not like that sort of important state of the nation type? Oh, you know, bad type novels. novels. Yeah. Bad novels. And I'll explain it. There's a, the artist and novelist um, Stuart Holm. And he's a a Marxist writer. And he once argued that the only way to be a true revolutionary novelist now is to write a bad novel. And he means that as a direct attack to bourgeois default mode tastes. Mm -hmm. This kind of establishment literary fiction that is a kind of lyrical humanist mirror that we hold up and the bourgeois look into the mirror, see something of themselves, recognise something of the world around them, give themselves a nice pat on the back for doing so, and then move on. Now, the bad novel, he doesn't mean write a bad novel, but he means the bad novel disrupts that. Mm -hmm. The bad novel doesn't give pleasure to the reader. The bad novel disrupts reading pleasure, which is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I always say I don't want to give pleasure to my readers. I want to disrupt reading pleasure. I want them to find it unsettling. I don't want them to like my characters in that sense. I certainly don't want them to empathise with them. And I certainly don't want it to be a true reflection of the world around them. I want it to Mm -hmm. be a kind of... I want it to fuck with the symbolic order of things. That's what I think novelists should be doing. And I think that's the only thing novelists can do right now. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just recreating and repeating the same default mode, which is this very nice, lyrical, uh, neoliberal, uh, humanist novel. And my favourite writers like Rob Grillet, you know, they said, what's the point in writing a novel when the novel does the reading for you? Do you know what I mean? What is the point in that? There should be an intersection, there should be a collision mm-hmm. between the thing, the novel and the person who picks it up, Mm -hmm. and you should hit them, and you should either be blown away by it, carried away, or blown away and repulsed, and just, you know, think, what the hell was that? Mm -hmm. And I think if you can do that, then that's a good thing. So to me, it doesn't matter if Vulgar Things is liked or disliked. They're one and the same thing. So, um, yeah, I think that's what novelists should be doing. And the majority of them aren't. Mm -hmm. The majority of novelists have their eye on the prize and have their eye on their readership and want their readership to like them. Well, nonetheless, I should finish by saying that we are supposed to be um, recommending and flogging books here. (laughs) So um, Bulga Things by Lee Rock is an absolutely cracking read. It doesn't read anyway like the way that Lee has just described it. So do do ignore his his last few points. (laughs) So yes, we've been talking about Vulgar Things by Lee Rook, which is out now from 40 State. So Lee, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. (laughs) You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, or even a lot, you can do so at littleadams.com. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.